Reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's turn now to the New Testament reading, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Um, For those of you who might have uh, missed Christmas at home for whatever reason, or maybe like me, you were busy putting the finishing touches to your Christmas lunch or your Christmas dinner, uh, there there was a question that we asked at the end of our Christmas at home service, and uh, there was an online poll where people could give uh, the answers to that question. Um, Some of the answers were a little bit funny, like uh, uh, people answered, you know, uh, actually, the question was, what gives you satisfaction in life? That was the question. What gives you satisfaction in life? And some people gave some, uh, some a, a little bit jokey answers, like, you know, mango sticky pudding or durian. I don't know how that gives you satisfaction. Um, but there are some that were a bit more serious, right? Like some, uh, and, and the idea is that we'll take these answers and we're going to um, uh, address them and, and, and speak about them in our sermons over uh, January next year. Uh, but I want to I take a little sneak peek at one of the answers, if that's okay, um, because uh, I think it's relevant for our passage this morning. Uh, one of the more popular answers from Christmas at Home uh, was this idea that, you know, if, uh, what would give you satisfaction in life? Uh, the answer was comfort. Now, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, what gives us, um, what feeds our desire for comfort. Uh, now, comfort takes many forms, right? 
there's the moment of uh, changing out of your work clothes um, and, uh, or, or your uniform that you're wearing, and uh, you uh, change into your comfy homeware, you sink into your couch with, with a soft blanket, maybe you grab uh, a cup of tea or your favorite book, or you turn on your, your favorite or most recent guilty pleasure Netflix show that you're binging. Um, that, that's one form of comfort. Um, another form of comfort might be sitting down at the table, smelling the aroma of your favorite comfort food, uh, a bowl of noodle soup like laksa on a cold and rainy day, or maybe some congee or chicken soup if you're feeling a bit unwell or under the weather, maybe some sticky date pudding or whatever that thing is um, uh, with ice cream to, to cap off a delicious dinner. Uh, maybe comfort looks like the embrace of a dear friend or a family member, uh, warmly welcome you, welcoming you home or cheering you up after a bad day or congratulating you on a recent achievement or consoling you in a time of grief or loss. Uh, but I suspect, uh, you know, th- those are all great things. Uh, those are all great forms of comfort. Um, but I suspect uh, that... Uh, some of the answers that uh, answered comfort on the poll were perhaps referring to something more. Uh, Now, fun fact, it's just been about one year since I've moved up from Sydney to Brisbane. I moved up on the 28th of November, 2022. Uh, It's now the 26th, so two more days until my Brisbane anniversary, so that's exciting. Um, And in that time, I've, I've learned a couple of things about the difference between Sydney and Brisbane. And one of the things I've noticed is this. In Sydney, most people aspire to be successful. They want to do well in school. They want to be competitive at sport, particularly in the origin. Uh, They want to progress in their career. Uh, They want to move into a nicer suburb. And and collectively, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret, we want to be the best city in Australia. That's why most of the time uh, when you meet people from Sydney, they are very proud that they're from Sydney. Um, But in Brisbane, I've noticed that people don't aspire as much to be successful. uh, And if they do, they probably move to Sydney. Um, (laughs) But what they do aspire to be is comfortable. To to earn enough uh, to spend comfortably. Uh, to work or study uh, enough so that they still have enough time to rest and play comfortably. To have a home uh, big enough or nice enough to live comfortably. To save enough to retire comfortably. And there's something uh, respectable and modest about seeking a comfortable life, right? You know, you're not ambitiously devoting all your time to work. You're, you're not greedily hoarding your wealth. Uh, you're not excessively spending on luxury things. No, you, you just want to do enough. You just want to earn enough so that you and your family can be free from worry and enjoy the comfortable life. And so desiring comfort can be seen as a good, uh, perhaps, an, uh, perhaps even a noble thing. Uh, it's certainly much better than the success-obsessed Sydney uh, that uh, I come from. I wonder, whether, I wonder whether this desire for comfort resonates with you. Now, it might not be the main thing that uh, will give you the satisfaction that you desire in life, uh, 
but it's pretty up there. Or at the very least, you wouldn't be unhappy if you were comfortable in life. Now, you might not have picked this up, picked up on this earlier when we read through the Bible, but our passage this morning, I think, has something to say about our, our desire for comfort. Uh, this passage warns us against getting too comfortable in life, while at the same time promising true comfort from a familiar but unexpected source. Uh, so keep your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 3, and uh, we'll be going uh, through the first four chapters of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, uh, from now up until Christmas. Uh, and we actually, uh, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series, but we actually kind of started it last week because we looked at Matthew chapter 4 last week uh, during Christmas at home. Uh, and now the observant among you will realize that now we've gone back to chapter 3, not chapter 1. Uh, um, uh, for the reason for this little out of order um, thing is that we'll, we'll be looking at chapters 3 to 4 of Matthew from now over the next couple of weeks up until Christmas. And then on uh, Christmas Eve, we'll return to Matthew chapter 1. And then on Christmas Day, we'll look at Matthew chapter 2. Now, these four chapters in Matthew kind of act as an origin story. You know how superheroes often have origin stories? This is the origin story for the hero of this gospel, uh, who is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And so in these four chapters, we'll find out uh, more about who this Jesus is, uh, where he comes from, and what he comes to do. Now, for some of us, these stories will be very familiar. For others, uh, it will be brand new. Uh, But regardless of how well or how little you know these stories, uh, there's always going to be something to learn, something to be encouraged by, or something to be challenged by uh, whenever we open any part of the Bible, uh, and particularly as we open uh, the Gospel of Matthew over these next weeks. Uh, So let's come now to Matthew chapter 3 with our minds open and our hearts ready to lift our eyes to Jesus. Uh, So uh, let's uh, look there at Matthew chapter 3. And the chapter opens uh, with John the Baptist. Uh, uh, Where we are in chapter 3 is that it's actually been some time now since the birth and childhood of Jesus. And now the focus shifts very briefly onto another character. Uh, This John, uh, he's called John the Baptist. doesn't mean he's a Baptist, as in like the denomination Baptist. It just means that he was in the practice of baptizing people. And, And John is here in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, the wilderness is not, not necessarily a desert-like place. It's just an area that's more like it's an uninhabited by people, uh, but still accessible enough for people to come out to. It's kind of like when you go on a hike in the Gold Coast hinterland or in the Glasshouse Mountains or something. That's, that's kind of like the wilderness that we're kind of talking about here. And John is in the wilderness, and he's there to preach. Now, what's the message he's preaching? Have a look in your Bibles at verse 2. Uh, Verse 2, this is the message he's preaching, or probably a summary of it. He says, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when you hear the word repent, what comes to mind? Maybe you think about those uh, street preachers that you uh, sometimes see at Queen Street Mall uh, down in the CBD. Uh, they, they stand on a milk crate and they just preach all about the disastrous things that are going to happen at the end of the world, and they call on people to repent. Uh, repent, lest you fall victim to the wrath to come. Maybe that's what comes to mind, this idea of, of repenting from the wrath to come. Or maybe when you hear the word repent, 
uh, it makes you feel a little bit guilty. Uh, it makes you think about all of the sins that you still struggle with, about how your thinking and behavior is, is so often at odds uh, with the goodness of God. Maybe when you hear the word repents, you feel a, a tinge of guilt in your heart. Those are very negative ways to think about the word repent. And, 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 it, and I think in our culture and society today, repent is a, very, is a word that has a lot of negative baggage. It's not a very popular message. Uh, it's not something that would be very well received uh, by people today. So you can imagine if uh, John the Baptist rocked up to Queen Street Mall today and he stood on a milk crate and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, you, you might imagine that he wouldn't have too many people listening. But John's message was not something that was meant to instill fear or guilt or, or even outrage. It was actually meant to bring comfort. You see, Matthew uh, gives some background to John, to, to John the Baptist by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 3. Uh, now, last week, uh, Christmas at home, we learned a little bit about the prophet Isaiah and the time he was living in uh, when Pastor Steve gave us that sort of history of, of Israel. Uh, just to kind of recap, Isaiah was writing in a time when the nation of Israel was divided in two. There was the north, uh, northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. And both kingdoms were on the verge of being overrun by the big superpowers of the day. Uh, and Isaiah explains in his prophecy that the reason for this is because God's people have turned away from him and turned instead to worship idols. And so uh, Isaiah goes on to uh, predict, to prophesy, uh, and, and this actually happens. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is flattened by Assyria. They're completely wiped out. And then the southern kingdom, a couple of uh, centuries later, uh, would eventually be conquered by Babylon. Uh, Babylon would send people in, they would uh, take people, export people out, uh, and uh, the southern kingdom of Judah would find themselves in exile in Babylon. Uh, so the once great kingdom of Israel divided into uh, because of idolatry and now overrun by superpowers. That's the kind of situation that Isaiah is prophesying into. That's kind of the trauma that he's speaking into. And, and if you are familiar with the book of Isaiah, the first half, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy contains all of those strong warnings uh, to the nation of Israel uh, about what's going to happen to their people because of their idolatry. So it's all kind of doom and gloom in that first 39 chapters. But then in the second half from chapter 40, the prophecy is actually all about comfort, I mean, look at, look at how Isaiah opens the second half of his prophecy. I have a look there on the screen from chapter 40, verse 1. Uh, Isaiah prophesies, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are words for God's people in exile, to those in Isaiah's time living away from their land under the harsh rule of Babylon. But it's also words for God's people in John the Baptist's time, living in their land, but under the harsh rule of the Roman Empire. 
These are words for people who are living in the wilderness. A wilderness that is not just physical or geopolitical or existential. It's a wilderness that is spiritual. Uh, And Matthew picks up on the next part of Isaiah's prophecy and and applies it to uh, John the Baptist, describing his preaching as the voice crying in the wilderness. And this voice you'll see there uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. This voice is meant to prepare the way for God to come and bring comfort to his people. Now, what is this comfort that God brings? Well, in Isaiah, it is God saving his people from their physical and spiritual wilderness and establishing his new creation. He's saving them from their physical and spiritual wilderness and establishing his new creation. And John the Baptist puts it this way, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's voice announces the good news that God's coming kingdom is is near. It's at hand. It's on the cusp of breaking into history. And he prepares the way for the Lord of this kingdom by calling his hearers to repent, to turn away from themselves, to turn away from their idolatry, to turn away from their sin, and to turn towards God and his comfort. Now, imagine you're, you're an Israelite living in Jerusalem at this time. You know, you're, you're living under the regime of the Roman Empire. Uh, you're a good Jew. Uh, you, you go to the synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath. Uh, and you're longing for the comfort that Isaiah prophesied. You know, every time Isaiah is read out in the synagogue, you hear those words of comfort. And you're longing for that comfort to come. And one day you hear that uh, there's this nobody who, who dresses a little bit daggy, who uh, follows a bit of a paleo diet. Uh, he, he's preaching out in the middle of whoop-whoop, uh, out in the wilderness. And you think that no, no one's going to bother to listen to this guy, right? He's, he's in the middle of, he, his marketing strategy is a little bit off, right? Like, and yet crowds of people are flocking to hear him. People from Jerusalem, from all of Judea, from everywhere around the Jordan River. They're flocking to him, not because of who he is, not because of what he wears, not because of where he's preaching, but because he is bringing the words of comfort that Israel are so desperately longing to hear. Imagine you're that Israelite. You decide, okay, I'll I'll give this a shot. I'll, I'll rock up. I'll see what's going on. You hear John the Baptist preach, and you realize that this man is the prophet that Isaiah is speaking about, and that this message is pointing to the comfort that you have been longing for. And when you hear the word repent, it doesn't instill fear, doesn't instill guilt, doesn't instill outrage, it instills comfort. See, there is nothing negative about John's call to repent. Uh, No no one reacts negative. No one goes, nah, nah, that's not for me. And and that's what we see in verse 6. People, they gather to hear John preach. Uh, They hear these words of comfort and they repent. They recognize and confess their sins 
And then they are baptized by John with water in the River Jordan as a sign of that repentance. Now let's take a moment to, to kind of think here. Why is it that John caused people to repent? Why is repentance the appropriate response to the nearness of God's kingdom? Well, it's because the coming of God's kingdom signals that salvation is near. A savior is coming, uh, one who will illuminate their spiritual darkness, uh, the, the darkness they find themselves in the wilderness, and will illuminate it with his glorious light. Now think about it. How would you prepare to be saved? How would you prepare to be saved? Well, you'd need to admit to yourself that you, you actually need saving in the first place. It's a little bit like uh, when you're swimming at a beach uh, and you get caught in a rip. So, you know, you see that calm water there in between the waves. You think, oh, that'll be a really nice place to swim, right? Uh, but no, uh, a rip uh, is calm because it's, it's kind of, it's not pushing in, it's taking you out. And so, you know, uh, you're, you're enjoying there, you're, you're laying on your back, you're swimming at the beach, and you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm a pretty good swimmer. Um, I think... Uh, I think I can get out of this rip. Uh, I, feel, I feel like it's pulling me out of the, the shore. And so, you know, you try swimming for a little bit. Uh, you, you try and practice your, your strokes. Uh, but after a few minutes, you realize that you're actually getting more and more tired. And you're being pulled further and further out to sea. And there comes a point when you need to admit to yourself that you need saving. When the, uh, you know, it might, it might be a bit earlier than, you know, uh, when this happens, but uh, definitely at this point, you know, when the waves are crashing over you, uh, when your head keeps getting submerged under the water, that's probably the time, that's probably the point where you need to admit that you need to be saved. And it's probably the point in which you need to prepare to be saved. And how do you prepare to be saved when you're caught in a rip? Well, hopefully uh, there are lifeguards there. You're swimming between the flags. But yes, uh, like Harold, you raise your arms, you raise your hands, and you wait for a savior to pull you out of the water. That moment of raising your hand is what it means to repent. John is preparing Israel for their savior by calling them to repent to admit that they need saving, to stick out their hand and to be ready to be pulled out from the water and into the coming kingdom. This is why John calls Israel to repent. He is preparing the way to salvation. The kingdom is near and their savior is coming. And in this, Israel can find comfort. Now, the story of John the Baptist doesn't end there. Uh, in fact, everything that we've read so far is, is actually kind of the background information to the actual story that happens. Uh, that there's a bit of drama that's about to unfold. That's, this is where the real meat of the story happens. So have a look uh, with me in your Bibles from verse 7. Uh, as John is going about preaching and uh, baptizing people in the Jordan River, he sees a large group of Pharisees and Sadducees uh, who have come along. Uh, if you don't know what a Pharisee or a Sadducee is, they, they, these people were the ones who were considered the religious elite. 
Many of them were super confident uh, in their social and in their spiritual standing, uh, to the point where it would have been difficult to see any of them seeing the need to raise their arms and admit that they needed help to be saved. And John, he's, uh, you know, he's pretty keyed in. He perceives, uh, he perceives this about them. He gets a sense that the Pharisees and Sadducees have come not so much to repent, uh, but to simply be baptized. You know, they, they, they want to join in on the action. They want to, they want to be super spiritual too. Uh, they, they kind of just want to be there to be baptized. Uh, they're not really there for repentance. Uh, and, and, you know, if you weren't uh, clear that John felt this way, uh, his words that follow uh, make John's feelings very clear. Have a look there in verse, uh, second, halfway through verse 7. He calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, in other words, he calls them children of snakes. You know, that's, not, that's not a very nice thing to call someone, a, a, a child of a snake. It's, it's rarely a compliment. It definitely doesn't suggest an attitude of repentance, especially given the history between snakes and sin. Uh, and then John follows up with uh, a, a sort of a, a sarcastic rhetorical question. And he goes, uh, who, who warned you from the wrath to come? Uh, it's kind of, because John's like, oh, I didn't warn you. Why are you here? Uh, it's kind of suggesting that uh, uh, to the Pharisees and Sadducees that the only reason they're seeking baptism is not because they're truly repentant, that they, they want to turn away from their sin and turn to God. Uh, it's kind of suggesting that uh, they're only there to be baptized because it'll, they think it'll help them to escape from the coming wrath. They're just really looking out for themselves. They're not, they're not really genuine about their repentance. And so John then takes the opportunity to double down on what it means to repent. He kind of goes, oh yes, a sermon illustration has walked onto the scene. I can now use this to explain what it means to repent. And he says two things about repentance. He says that repentance cannot be once off and it cannot be shallow. Repentance cannot be once off, and it cannot be shallow. You see, John knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees think that their status as children of Abraham, uh, the fact that they are descended from Abraham, that they are Israelites, uh, that they have Abraham as their father, they think that their status will guarantee them a place in God's kingdom. But John there in verse 9 points out, that there's nothing special about having Abraham as their father. The reason is, is that God can raise anyone up to be a child of Abraham. God can raise anyone. Like, it doesn't matter that you're, you're, you call Abraham your father. Everyone can call Abraham their father if God raises them up. You see, John makes it clear that it's got nothing to do with your heritage, nothing to do with your obedience to religious practices. It's got nothing, actually, to do with you. Salvation into God's kingdom is all about God. God is powerful enough to make even stones into children for Abraham. God is the one who saves, not you. Therefore, you need to entrust yourself to the God who saves. You see, the problem of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that their repentance is dangerously shallow. They just think, oh, I'm a child of Abraham, that'll be fine. 
They think their ancestry, and they think maybe a once-off dunk in the water will be enough to save them from the coming wrath. But what does John tell them? Have a look there at verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not a once-off act. It is a permanent change in attitude. And it is a change that produces ongoing changed behavior. You know, you can tell uh, a good fruit tree by whether it produces good fruit. Any tree that fails to bear good fruit is cut down so that they can try again. Uh, In the same way, you can tell someone is truly repentant by whether it results in repentant behavior. And anyone who isn't truly repentant will find themselves not in the comfort of God's kingdom, but in the fire and suffering of hell. This is John's warning to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have grown too comfortable to realize that they're in danger of drowning. And he continues in verse 11 to warn about the mightier one who will come after John, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, And here in verse uh, 11, he suggests that the one, that those who are not truly repentant will receive no baptism from the Lord Jesus. Instead, there will be the chaff of the wheat grain that is left behind at harvest. Uh, And what's left behind is actually just burnt up. In other words, John uh, is warning them that they will have no place in God's coming kingdom. They will have no salvation from the coming wrath. There is no comfort for them. But in the words of John's warning, there is also still comfort. Because you see, for those who do repent, there is a greater baptism to come. One that involves the transformation and the purification of a Holy Spirit and of fire. You see, those baptized by Jesus um, won't be burnt off like the chaff of the wheat, but they will be gathered up into the kingdom of Jesus, where they will be safe, where they will be secure in his comfort. See, John has been preparing the way for sinners, for sinners in need of salvation and comfort to come uh, by calling them to repentance in Jesus. His warnings to the Pharisees and Sadducees also serve to warn the repentant against relying on themselves with shallow or once-off repentance and instead to entrust themselves fully to their Savior. To, To not only raise their arms above the water, but to keep them there until their Savior comes and then to entrust themselves fully to their Savior as He embraces them into His arms and raises them out. So this is the story of John the Baptist. Uh, And the story of John the Baptist isn't over. Uh, We'll continue the story next week. uh, But uh, we're continuing next week because at that point, Jesus walks onto the scene. Uh, So look forward to that for next week. 
But for now, we've heard that John preaches a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He warns us not to be so comfortable that we don't see our need for repentance. Instead, he, he implores us to seek comfort in our repentance and in a repentance that bears ongoing fruit in our lives. So the question for us this morning is this. How ought we to respond to what we've read and explored today? Well, we ought to heed the words of John the Baptist and of our Lord Jesus and repent. Repent. You see, we ought to see repentance as something that is not just one and done. Repentance is not simply praying the sinner's prayer. It's not, it's not that you've accepted Jesus and so you've been justified by faith. It's not that you've been baptized and so you're all good. Repentance is not just one and done. Repentance is whole of life, and it's all of life. It's whole of life, and it's all of life. It is constant. It is continual. It is raising your arms out of the water and keeping them there, recognizing that we are in a constant struggle against sin until our Savior fully arrives, until the kingdom fully arrives. We ought to see that repentance is not just one and done. We also ought to see that repentance is not shallow. You see, for the, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the shallowness of their repentance was apparent in their reliance on their ancestry and in their self-righteousness. You might say that they had grown comfortable and complacent in their sinfulness. What would shallow repentance look like for us? What would shallow repentance look like for us? Perhaps your repentance uh, is shallow because you have grown too comfortable with your sin. It, it might be because you're, you've grown tired and weary and, of fighting persistent sin. It might be because you've lost hope that you can ever change. It might be because you've convinced yourself that this sin is so minor that God doesn't really care. Or it might be that you've actually, you've even been convinced that what you're doing isn't actually sin. Perhaps you've grown too comfortable with your sin. Or perhaps your repentance is shallow because you found comfort not in repentance, but in the things of this world. Having just enough to be comfortable has lulled you into a false sense of comfort that forgets or even sees no need for the comfort of God's kingdom. And so you've convinced yourself that you don't need to raise your arms above the water because the water in the river is actually very calm. It's, it's very warm. It's, it's very comforting. No, our repentance ought to be deep enough to admit that we cannot save ourselves. It needs to be deep enough to recognize that we, we actually don't need to save ourselves because Jesus is our Savior. He is the light that has come into the darkness of our world and into the darkness of our hearts. He is the one who dies for us on the cross to save us from our sins, to save us from death, 
to save us from darkness. He is the one that cleanses us of our sin and enables us to overcome temptation. He is the one that brings true and everlasting comfort as he gathers us up into his embrace and welcomes us into his kingdom. You see, friends, shallow and temporary repentance uh, will lead to fear and anxiety. It will lead to guilt and shame. And eventually, it will lead to apathy and complacency. But deep and constant repentance leads to the comfort of being able to confess your sins to God and to one another freely and openly, knowing that you have been given grace. Deep and constant repentance leads to the comfort of entrusting yourselves fully to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that this will definitely save you from the wrath to come. Deep and constant repentance leads to the comfort of being transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit, so that you can bear fruit that reflects your changed heart. Deep and constant repentance leads to the comfort of the kingdom to come, where the weak and momentary comforts of this world will pale in comparison to the glory that will be in the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is near. Prepare for this kingdom by raising your arms above the water and embracing your Savior. Bear fruit in keeping with a deep and constant repentance and embrace the comfort that comes from turning away from our sin, turning away from ourselves, and turning to God and His grace. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, I'm going to give you a quiet moment now to reflect to, before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, you might like to read over the passage again. You might like to scan your notes. You might like to reflect and ponder where your heart is at with God. You might even like to spend some time in prayer to God, confessing your sins asking God for his help to change your heart so that it might, it might live in deep and constant repentance. So I'll give you a moment now to reflect. <laughs>